Welcome to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. I'm Sean Borstrog. On this episode, I'm chatting with Grant Gibson, one of the UK's leading design, craft and architecture writers. His work has been published in The Observer, The New Statesman, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph and House and Garden, to name just a few. During a long career in magazines, Grant has been the editor of Blueprint, the deputy editor of FX, and acting executive editor of the Reba Journal. More recently, he has been editor of Crafts and a contributing editor of the Dutch architecture title, Mark. He was also the launch editor of the London Design Festival Guide and co-founded Real to Real, the UK's first film festival devoted to making. And in 2019, Grant launched the critically acclaimed podcast Material Matters with Grant Gibson. Three years later, the show was transformed into a new fair at the Barge House at the Oxo Tower Wharf in London. This year, Material Matters 2023 takes place in the same place at the Barge House at the Oxo Tower in London from the 20th to the 23rd of September. It's definitely, definitely worth a visit. Grant, hi, welcome to the podcast. It's great to see you. Hello, Sean. Delighted to be here. So this is going to be a slightly odd one, I think, for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> You're preempting what's going to happen here, Sean. Okay, let's see. Let's see how odd we can make it. No, the reason I say that is because you talk a lot and write a lot and engage a lot with making, mm. but don't ever mention luxury. Um, no, that's probably true. Yeah, that is true. So I it, it's not necessarily conscious, but it is probably true. Yeah. Yeah. So I think maybe to start with, just if you could tell us a little bit about you and um, what you do. Sure. Uh, well, I started life um, as a design journalist, fundamentally, uh, working on a bunch of magazines, really starting from the mid-90s. So I think my first job was in 1995, having left university um, on a magazine called FX which I think is still going today. It's an interior design magazine that talks about contract interiors, so hotels, bars, offices, clubs, nightclubs, shops, that kind of thing. Um, from there, I went on in 2000 to edit a magazine called Blueprint, um, which very sadly is no longer with us. Um, I mean, that was a really a high-end design and architecture title. It was, at the time kind of the job to have. I was ridiculously young in retrospect, probably too young for it. Um, subsequent to that, I had a spell freelancing, but then I did a, a short spell with my friend Hugh Pearman on the RABA Journal, which was a gift and a complete joy. And then finally, in my kind of print journalism career, I, um, I ended up at, uh, editing a magazine called Crafts, um, which is published by the Crafts Council, where I talked about all things making. And then um, the Crafts Council and I had, I think it's fair to say, uh, a bit of a moment. Um, there was a parting of the ways and I got fed up with print. I probably stayed in print for too long is the truth of the matter. Um, because however talented, skillful, however much love, however much hard work you put into a magazine nowadays, pretty much, and it doesn't really matter what they tell you, pretty much you're managing decline, which becomes slightly depressing after a while. So. So when I left Crafts, I wanted to create something that was kind of bigger than me because I tried freelance writing and I wasn't very good at it. I couldn't take all the rejection. So um, I started this podcast called Material Matters. That was 2019. 
really with, I don't know what my expectations were in retrospect, probably not that high, but I, I got six uh, makers and designers to talk to me. Um, and I, I launched the first six episodes in one batch in January 2019. And um, it, they went very well. Um, I had to explain to quite a few people what a podcast was because podcasts had been going for quite a long time. But there was still an awful lot of the population that, that weren't listening to podcasts. So I remember having to explain to people what a podcast was and how they should receive it. Um, and yeah, no, it took off. And it quickly became clear that there was potential for this to turn into, you know, a brand, as it were. Um, and the, the, then the next step was going to be live events. Obviously, then the pandemic happened and um, live events were put on hold for a couple of years. But as soon as we came out of, of that, I joined forces with my, my friend and colleague, or now colleague, William Knight, who used to be the deputy director of the London Design Festival. He's run 100% Design, Clark and World Design Week, did events out in Dubai, um, and he knows how to put on events. So we joined forces and we launched the fair, which happened last September in Barge House, Oxford Tower Wharf, happening again. Don't know when this podcast is coming out, people, but it's happening again, yeah. 20th to 23rd of September. Do come along, Oxford Tower or Barge House, Oxford Tower. Um, so, yeah, and and that went um, went pretty, pretty well, really, last year. I mean, very well, really. Um, so we're doing it again this year and we're looking to expand internationally as well. That's the the next step, I think. The Material Matters show was amazing. I mean, it is amazing to um, realise something um, in, in in its physical form because, you know, we talk, you know, with me and with you, you know, you're talking about things that people should be touching and feeling and interacting with. Yeah, that was, it was interesting. When I, when I first launched a podcast, I had a couple of people say, well, you know, if you can't see it, then how is this going to work? And actually you know it works very well i mean it, in fairness that there is very little logic to that i mean you wouldn't have art shows on the radio were that the case but um yeah there there is a there's a joy and it was a genuine joy of making something three-dimensional there's no question so i mean going back to where we started uh, you know you talking about materials and design and making and not referring um making no reference to luxury and mm. i talk about the same things within a luxury context mm. i was just wondering what you thought about you know separating well, the two or bringing them together i don't yeah i mean it's not it's not a conscious decision not to talk about luxury um i suppose really i try and think about when i do the podcast I, i'm not thinking about one particular sector i mean i like the idea of that you can explore materials across um you know across a, in, in terms of a continuum yeah, the notion that I can do a um, a podcast on Grenfell Tower and talk about the work of Edmund Duval, for instance. So, you know, I can go from a uh, high-end art world into, you know, deeply upsetting disaster and the kind of social issues that surround that and the political decisions that were made. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's an interesting one. I've, I've just never really thought about about why I haven't mentioned luxury. You've noticed it. <laughs> I, I, I haven't considered it. So there you go. But listening to some of your, um, listening to some of your podcasts and the way um, those designers or makers talk about the way they interact with materials, for me, is really, really important because I think what, um, I suppose what I'm interested in is, in is in a world of, you know, mass consumption 
you know, people often forget about the materials and the person behind them who's making them. Using yeah, them. I mean, th- this is this is the key to the podcast, really. It's about material intelligence and this notion that if you, and maybe this is why I don't talk about luxury because I'm not trying to segment it into markets. What it's fundamentally about is, at least my theory feeling is that if you understand materials and you understand how things are made, then you're likely to understand the world around you a little bit better and you're probably less likely to throw stuff away needlessly. I mean, that's that's really the key for, for the podcast for me and, and also the fair. So in some regards, and, and possibly commercially, this is probably not that sensible, but it's 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 not about segmenting. It's not about saying you belong in this market and therefore your, your pieces are worth this much money. It, it's really about talking about how materials affect our lives. And that can be through people who are experimenting at a very high end in terms of the art world or as I say, it can be people doing something much more democratic, and you know that it, it, go, it goes across the, the, the spectrum. We live in a time where people don't understand how things are put together, uh, or they don't understand how the food that they buy in a you know cellophane wrapper actually arrives uh, at the supermarket. And so I think it is vital that we do understand. When I grew up, um, there used to be a, a kids' show called Play School. Um, and you'd go through the round and the square and the arch window, and you would always, in, in this in this scenario, you'd always end up in a factory, and where they'd explain how stuff was made and why and how. And somewhere along the line, my sense is that we've we've forgotten about process, and on so many levels, um, that's a shame. Yeah, and and I absolutely agree, and I think that's why I started exploring this idea of luxury. Um, because at that top end of the market, or at that, well, it's not the top end of the market, in that environment, the craft and the materials are often ignored um, in favour of branding. And that's why I was interested in talking to you. Yes, uh, yes, I think there is a distinct danger of that. Um, I mean, there was a point, I mean, when I, when I first started uh, editing crafts, which is what, 2007 I think I did it for a decade or so and when I first went to go and edit the magazine uh, a number of my friends uh, who are journalists in the architecture world were, were quite sneery and made comments about you know you'll just be talking about basket weaving and we did talk about basket weaving because basket weaving is an extraordinary skill and people like Joe Hogan are, are rather brilliant uh, to name just one um, but craft was a bit of a, a dirty word and it seems to me that has changed in the last 15, maybe 20 years. Uh, some of that is down to a book by Richard Sennett called The Craftsman, yeah. um, which became quite an important kind of um, uh, book for me when I was editing Crafts because I was trying to expand the notion of what craft could be and where craft was found. And if every, if anybody ever started being critical, I could just point them towards Sennett and he says, well, he says this is a craft, so therefore I'm all right doing what I'm doing. It was a very right. useful very useful tone. But there was a point a few years ago where, I mean, craft was being overused. Everywhere you turned, people were talking about something being craft. I mean, you walk into Starbucks and they were talking about how your coffee was handmade and your various car brands were um, talking about the, the handcrafted nature of, of their cars. Crisps, there were crisps that were disca- describing themselves as being crafted. And I know that they had some makers in an advertising campaign. So there was a moment where, you know, ad... Uh, companies jumped on craft as something that was um, had value, perceived value. I'm not sure, because these things move on, don't they? I'm not sure we're quite there, back there yet. But certainly if you go to the Milan Furniture Fair a few years back, 
there was a show, God, it would have been about 2009, sure, and you'll have to look it up, and I'm sure listeners will be able to put me right, called Craft Punk, where uh, various makers and designers were asked to make products from offcuts of a, a, a famous leather brand whose name is escaping me because I'm very old nowadays. So I can't remember any names. It's terrible. Um, and it, it caused quite a stir in Milan. And for several years afterwards, so many stands in the Salone and outside in, in the, the wider fair had somebody making something, you know, like a kind of performing monkey, really. It was a slightly weird thing. But craft suddenly became this very fashionable uh, word. And I, th- I think maybe we're finding a balance now, but, I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not certain. I think it's become quite important with the luxury brands mm. because they talk about things being crafted in a slightly different context, don't they? But, I mean, just in terms of the work you do, I mean, looking at the materials and how materials are crafted... Um, and the impact they have and how, you know, and how the makers use them. You also talk a lot about um, um, being responsible in the way you use your materials. I mean, that seems to be quite a big focus of the of um, the conversations you have and the show. Yeah. Well, I don't believe in wasting them. <laughs> no. <laughs> On the opposite side of the coin. Um, yeah, it's about people, generally speaking, it's about people using materials in an interesting and unwasteful way. I mean, you know, it's very tempting to talk about sustainability and circularity, and we do, but uh, and because that's important, there's absolutely no question. And actually, since we're talking about luxury, these are areas that the luxury market should be leading on, in my opinion. And maybe, I mean, you're more of an expert in this. I'm not convinced that they are. Um, you're shaking your head. Listeners, Sean, <laughs> shaking his head on the screen. But, that, you know, that's an area, actually, that, that the luxury market should be, in my view, should be leading on. Um, where am I going with this? Oh, yes. I give myself wiggle room because sometimes I just like to talk to people who've done extraordinary things with materials that, let's face it, aren't necessarily sustainable. So uh, John Barnard springs immediately to mind, who was a revolutionary Formula One uh, designer, um, used uh, carbon fibre in ways that people had never used carbon fibre before in F1. And the McLarens that he designed during the 80s just dominated Formula One. So I was really keen to talk to him because, frankly, on the quiet, I'm a bit of an F1 fan back in the day. Not so much now, but but back in the 80s, it was a Sunday staple. My father used to be a bit of a motor racer. Uh, and, you know, I'm in, I'm intrigued by industrial and product design. And, and, and that, actually, what Barnard was doing with the team at McLaren and what F1 does, I mean, that in many regards is craft and it's certainly luxury. So in that sense, I just didn't use the word luxury, but it... it yeah. <laughs> it was there it's there how would you define luxury i mean putting you on the spot a bit if you were to mm. define it how would you define it yeah that is a good question and probably one i should have thought of before i came on air because let's face it you're always going to ask that right and what I, I never normally is, do what, oh do you not okay no. <laughs> what i'm trying to do now is buy some time but i suppose it, yeah. it's it's something that you wouldn't luxury is something you you don't normally have or wouldn't normally do isn't it mm. Um, and luxury is, is something that's luxurious it is different for different people. So for me right now, because I'm completely uh, slightly snowed under with Affair and the podcast and lots of, you know, starting a business and all this kind of stuff, luxury for me is time. You know, luxury for me is uh, a day spent at Lord's watching cricket with my son, uh, not answering a phone. Uh, you know, sometimes luxury is not having stuff. Yeah. Other times luxury very definitely is having stuff. So, well, for some people. So uh, I think definitions of luxury can be slippery. I mean, luxury has to do with, in some regards, scarcity, doesn't it? 
Or do you think yeah. you're the luxury expert? Well, yeah, I'm, I I think that is part of it. But then luxury is not always a product. You know, it could be as could be a service. But um, you know, I I I do think that the materials are really important, and I think that having some skill in being able to to produce something. But skill isn't skill isn't unique to the luxury market is it you no. know there is skill in lots of the day-to-day products that we buy there's skill in the the tooling of the machines that pump out products that that we buy so yeah i, I the notions of luxury can be quite slippery they never used to be as slippery i think it's you know over the past probably tw- <laughs> 20 or 30 the years they've got more slippery right okay. were, exactly well, the word luxury like the word craft has i suspect got overused and now it's impossible to buy a flat pretty much without it being a luxury two-bedroom <laughs> flat um which you know obviously when we should be building family homes is that's a another moot point i guess but yes the word that you know it's a word that's got got massively overused in an mm. attempt to add a zero to whatever it is you're buying i suspect yeah exactly and that's again why i was interested in chatting to you because you don't refer to luxury but all the things you talk about you know the you know designers they're making um and the the relationship to the materials for me um are quite important things when you consider something as being a luxury product i think time increasingly nowadays if i think back to when i was you know when i started working we didn't have you know, the social media and the, you know, the internet and Tim Berners-Lee hadn't changed the world. Um, you know, we had much more time and, and space to think and to talk. So when I was a young journalist, you know, I used to go to architects' offices and just have coffee with them to find stuff out that would eventually lead to a story, potentially, but didn't necessarily have to. Whereas now the profession has changed to such a degree. I just don't think journalists get out in the same way. I think they're tied to their desks kind of regurgitating uh, PR's press releases. So, yeah, no, I think time is a, you know, is what I was alluding to with the, the, the Lord's anecdote, yeah. uh, is, a, is a huge luxury nowadays. Yeah. And to just tell, tell us a, a bit about the Materials Matters, about the show. Well, when we set it up, there were things that we definitely didn't want it to be. So we didn't want it to be in a big hangar space on the outskirts of the city uh, with a shell scheme. For me, it was very important, and for William actually as well, it was very important that we had a reason for this thing to exist. That it's a commercial fair, but it wasn't just going to bring together loads of vaguely contemporary stuff on the basis that people would you know, come and, I don't know, specify it afterwards because i kind of think that model is dead now and it's certainly in or dying certainly in europe maybe not in china so i think now we're looking at niche exhibitions and fairs that cover that have a very distinct purpose and that everybody can grapple why they're going to be there um and it's not just a question of going up and down aisle after aisle after aisle looking at you know sometimes quite expensive furniture we were keen that it became a kind of 3D representation of the podcast. I mean, when we found Barge House, because we wanted to be in the centre of the city, we felt that was really important to engage with the city properly. Uh, in London, that's not an easy thing to do because there just aren't derelict buildings anymore. Everything's a luxury hotel <laughs> or, a, or a luxury flat, uh, often for people who don't live in full time, at least. So, really, if you look, if you, there aren't many options other than Barge House, fundamentally. And when we found Barge House, it was then a question of how do you work with this building, which was a, an old meatpacking factory. We tried to do something slightly different on every floor, Sean, basically. There's, a, there's an entrance by a Danish designer called Tanya Kirst, 
who is a wonderful textile artist. Uh, there's a bit of Annie Albers about her. But she works in citrus peel, in pineapple fibre, and in hemp fibre to create these really, really beautiful objects. So we're working with her on the entrance. Then you go up, and um, the first floor is devoted to people who are really on the cutting edge of materials. Um, we've got a couple of um, US-based uh, design labs there, one of whom's working with Silkworm Solution, another who, of who is uh, 3D printing bio-waste. You go up the floor, and the second floor is our kind of more of a learning space. So we have a um, an area devoted to Hydro, the Norwegian recycled aluminium company, who are going to be telling people all about recycled aluminium and the, the, the joys and benefits of recycled aluminium. Third floor is more of our kind of, we call it our marketplace. And there's going to be a big installation by Isola, who are um, a Milanese design platform. And then the top floor, we have our talks program, uh, which is very well attended last year. Uh, and we have designers, makers, micro manufacturers really working in a variety of materials, some of which are quite conventional, so clay and there's some glass in there, others of which are more unexpected. A company called Plank, who makes furniture out of waste textiles. It's another company called Solid Wool, who take the wool from the Herdwick sheep, who are mainly found, well, almost predominantly, totally, in fact, found in the Lake Districts. And their wool is quite rough. Traditionally, it was used for carpets. We don't buy carpets in the same way anymore. So their wool was actually had become valueless and was being burned once it was once a sheep was sheared. So this company found a way of combining the wool with a, a bioresin and turning it into a material that you use for furniture. So you know, lots of different things going on up there, from conventional to to more cutting edge. Um, and yeah, it, it kind of fulfills, to my mind, it fulfills this brief of opening people's eyes to the possibilities of materials and the importance of materials, basically. It's interesting because there's a serious kind of pursuit of innovation and yes. perhaps well, even that, that, alchemy. That's certainly, that's certainly what's, what's happening in many of the, many of the uh, exhibitors that we have there. Yeah, and that you know, innovation, you know, a touch of alchemy, um, kind of pushing boundaries in all, you know, in all areas, to me is this pursuit of luxury because luxury, should, you know, for me is about change and innovation and kind of pursuing but we have to democratize that don't we sean isn't that because <laughs> if we don't we're in we're in bother um i mean the scalability is always a huge question with all these things taking it you know out of a niche craft based market and there's nothing wrong with that market at all I'm, I'm definitely not knocking that but for the world to change and for us to try and avert or at least mitigate the kind of climate crisis that we're definitely in and has become, you know, much less abstract than it was even a decade ago. It feels like it's at our door. Mm. Um, these ideas have to reach the mainstream and they have to reach the mainstream pretty rapidly, I would posit. So that's, I, I think that's what we're about. I think, if, if I think, I think my, the danger, now you've got me on this, the danger if, if we talked about craft, that it, would, it could potentially remain in a niche. And uh, that niche is fine to begin with, but actually it needs to reach the mainstream and it needs to reach the mainstream pretty quickly. Yeah, and I, I, I agree totally with that. But I suppose where you have the space to innovate, you need space to innovate, don't you? Yes. And typically that innovation comes from people who have got... Um, you know, I've got the time and the space to spend with the yeah, materials. Yeah. No, and... no, no, absolutely. I think, I think, I think, generally speaking, uh, you know, innovation initially is, you know, and this is this is where the luxury market does have a a key role to play because they have to support 
this innovation and then hopefully it will feed its way back to uh, the wider market. So yeah, no, I completely agree. I think I think most innovation and the room and the space to play often, often, not always, mm-hmm. because you know there are lots of very large brands with large innovation R and D departments who produce things that, that end up on everybody's table or house or whatever. But often these ideas start at the luxury end of the market and drip their way down. They just need to drip. It needs to be more of a stream. Uh, for some of these ideas, it's quite it's quite vital. I mean, take the take the architecture industry. Um, you know, it's the, it emits forty percent of our carbon emissions. Construction mm. is forty percent of our carbon emissions, um, and we really have to do something about that quickly. What can help? Well, we we have to use less concrete and less steel, and there are materials such as hemp, CLT. There are pan, a panoply of materials that could help the construction industry emits less and at the moment you know that they aren't being used in uh barrett homes across the country They're, you know it's, it's a niche market but it needs to stop being a niche market pretty rapidly i i agree i mean i think you know when you look at the luxury brands and you know the billions of dollars that or pounds that they turn over um each year and the amount of money they spend on using polypropylene because that's you know the, it's got the biggest margins it's the quickest and easiest thing to make and they can sell you know ton hundreds of thousands of units they supposedly support you know these green transitions when in actual fact, it's not possible for them to do that really because of the scale of their business. No, I mean, I think th- there's some really disturbing statistics around uh, the fashion, uh, textile fashion industry. I mean, I think the average, uh, the, the, the statistic that I used that I took out of the uh, Waste Stage exhibition at the Design Museum a, a year or so ago was that the average t shirt is worn seven times before it's thrown away. And, you know, there are mountains of. Um, unused textiles in countries like Chile that are just dumped. So, you know, we have to we have to move away from that. And the point of the podcast, I guess, is that we need to learn to treasure the things we buy. And you know, fast fashion is, is a deeply problematic, mm. as are many of our other habits. And actually what it boils down to, this has nothing to do with luxury at all. I'm sorry, terribly sorry, uh, no. Sean and, and listeners, but what it boils down to a lot of the time is what well, redesigning re-engineering retooling whichever word you want to use our systems you know i, I had a, i did a podcast with um professor rebecca early who's a, a expert in the circular um fashion and textile economy and she makes the point you know there's enough polyester in the world for us to be reusing for years and years and years we just need to work out systems to to reclaim it and to take it out of people's the back of people's wardrobes at home and to find new uses for it and to, to rethink, to, to treasure materials in different ways. I mean, I've also done with James Shaw, the designer who's been on the podcast, and, and he uh, works in recycled plastic. And he makes the point, you know, plastic isn't inherently a bad material. It's, it's, um, it's the fact that, you know, we use it once and then stick it in the ground. That's problematic. It's mm. the way we use it, not the material itself. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess if I'm doing anything, I'm just trying to persuade people to to think about the stuff that surrounds them and to consider different ways potentially of, of using it, I guess. There's a lot of focus on fashion as clothing as opposed to fashion as a concept where everything that we are buying, whether it's for the house or for our bodies, mm. is 
looked at as being disposable. Yeah, well, certainly, I mean, certainly seasonal. It's been it's been really interesting to watch um, the design world, which is you know the world I've inhabited. You know, become fashion has kind of inveigled itself into into every walk of of our lives, and and again, fashion isn't in and of itself a bad thing. Self expression is a is a great thing. You know, we're very lucky to live in a society where we can express ourselves because there are many that can't. So fashion is, you know, not per se a bad thing. But this churn that we're that we're encouraged to do, you know, the fact that we're encouraged to change our phone, you know, once a year and we're encouraged to change our interiors and we're encouraged to obviously change our wardrobe four times a, a year. I mean, we, we've kind of got to get away from that. And, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but it is ultimately about buying fewer, better things, which frankly is easy to say as a kind of middle-aged, middle-class bloke. Um, much harder to do if you're worried about how you, you make the you know the heating bill this, this winter. But, yeah, we have, to, we have to consume less and consume better, ultimately. Mm. Yeah, and do you think technology plays a big role in that, in the way we consume? In consuming less mm. or consuming more. In both. I mean, it, it, again, it's a tool. It can be one of either things. I mean, I certainly think that, you know, technology is often used to, to, to fling, as we know, to change elections, to, to fling advertising at you the whole time, to bombard you with messages that you don't necessarily need. So on that basis, it's probably not a good thing. Does it also, by the same token, encourage, you know, my daughter, for instance, to sell secondhand clothes online um, easily and, you know, keep a kind of circular economy going? Then, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a good thing. It's like anything. It's like materials, Sean. It's how you use it, isn't it? Mm. I mean, your world is is materials. What are the most exciting things that are coming our way in terms of material innovation? Well, yeah, this is. I mean, it's quite an interesting question. I see. So, you know, I don't necessarily think it's all about new. I mean, some of it is. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by. Um, on the podcast, we've had a designer called Natsai Audrey Chaser who dyes textiles with bacteria and there's you know there's a number of people that work with that and are using those techniques which i think is really intriguing there are people doing interesting things with biomaterials whether that's you know mycelium but it's also almost going back to things we used to do you know i've mentioned hemp i'm quite obsessed with hemp hemp is a great mm. is a great plant um it doesn't require much in the way of well any in the way of pesticides it puts nutrients back in the soil you can use it from everything from baking to buildings um, it's wonderful stuff, but and there's a again, there's so much of this goes down to, and it seems to me what we've discussed in this conversation, Sean, is is about labelling and and the way we use things and perception. It's it's got a bad rap, hemp. You know, at the moment in this country, to grow hemp, you need to get a license from the Home Office because they're convinced that that people will chop it smoke down, it. And smoke it, and yeah, end up watching The Simpsons and eating eating too many munchies uh which is not the case <laughs> it doesn't happen it's 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 related to but it isn't the same ad so hemp you know is an amazing material that we should be exploring more mm. i mean i think that the thing is with all this is that it's not straightforward you know i talked to a youngish architect called summer islam of uh practical material cultures and you know she makes the point that that if we change 
we got into a discussion about if you change everything, if you change the way we build and the materials we build with, you have to use change the way that we use our land. And if you change the way you use our land, then you have to change our diets because at the moment, so much of our crops are meant for animals. And, you know, so if the animals are not able to eat that, we don't eat so many animals ourselves. So you know, everything has a knock-on effect. And actually, we're looking at really, really, we, it's a revolution that that is required and i don't think we have the political or actually social will really to do it at this stage and you know at the moment in particular we're in a, an economic where we're moribund economically and people are worried about you know more day-to-day -day things you know, mm. how putting food on their table etc yeah and i think what's more worrying um is that there's the 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 divide is growing that much bigger that much faster between the people who you know don't need to worry about anything um yes. and the people who do yes this is true but you didn't think you'd talk about this in a luxury podcast <laughs> well you know i like i said to you before i just come back from the hamptons they can't sell enough 50 million dollar home homes yes and yes. it's like oh my gosh you know and there are hundreds of them and that's yes. one tiny island in you know, upstate New York. I mean, there are communities like that all over the world. Um, yeah, disparity of wealth is is a is a is a problem, and I yeah. think statistically, you know, in economies that have more uh, social mobility, there's statistics that prove that economies with more social mobility grow faster. Yeah. And I don't think that our social mobility is improving, and it hasn't improved for a very long time now. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's problematic, and maybe that maybe Sean, we're we're working our way into why I don't specifically talk about luxury. Maybe this is it. This it's is just it. taking me an hour with you to to work that out, but um, we're getting there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just thinking as you were talking and referencing your podcast, it would be interesting for me to have some conversations with some of the people you've spoken to about luxury and what they do. Yeah, I, absolutely. It's, it's a question I haven't asked, but it'll be it'll be on my agenda from now on. I promise. I wanted to ask you about um, this idea. You you, you kind of flitted, uh, or you briefly mentioned the word sustainability. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I flit quite a lot. It's it's a right. journalistic thing, unfortunately. Yeah, right. I think if you're a journalist, you you know a little about a lot. Yes. Uh, so flitting is something I do without knowing you know that much in depth. But let let's let's go on. <laughs> Drill me. Well, no, I just, I, you, you, you referred to sustainability and I was just wondering how important that is um, within the context of what you talk about with materials. Um, well, hugely important, no question. I mean, as I said before, I like to give myself a bit of wiggle room. I think, I think I, I, I made a decision not to call the podcast a sustainable podcast because I prefer the idea of people wanting just to listen to the show and then learning about some of these issues en route rather than trying to hit them over the head with a message and say, this is a sustainable podcast. I, 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 I get the sense, maybe I'm wrong, I get the sense that that might put a few potential listeners off. So I don't, I don't make a song and a dance at, about it, but sustainability, circularity and the issues around that you know, pretty much ever present in the podcast, I'd suggest. Yeah. But I think we try and be kind of a bit more subtle with the messaging. Do you think that we are shifting away from this, from using the word sustainable? Um, well, no, I think some people are. And I don't, I, I mean, it's it, again, like a lot of these terms, it's been used and abused and it's become quite a slippery, a slippery thing. So, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if people are moving away from it. I would argue that probably people are using it more and more. Whether they're using it correctly or not is a, is a different matter. Right. Because, you know, they used to be like, we used to be eco-friendly. You don't really hear that word anymore. You no, don't hear that terminology anymore so much. This um, is true. And I'm seeing, you know, with work that I've been doing with the Design Museum, they're talking about green transitions. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the notion of design being regenerative now is is currently, you know, what people are, are most interested in. I mean, the design world's had a, really had a, a bit of a grapple with all this over the years. I mean, when I first started writing about design in the mid-90s, classically, I think you'd say that, you know, people would, product designer, furniture designer, whatever, would leave the Royal College of Art and their ambition would probably to be to work for some big Italian furniture manufacturer, possibly in roto-molded plastic, show in Milan and become famous and be in magazines like some of the ones I used to edit. And over the years, what you've seen is is generations of designers actually questioning whether we should be designing at all. And if we are going to design, then what do we design and how do we do it to make it, um, you know, either sustainable or, or recyclable or regenerative. And, you know, there's been a kind of angsty notion. There's a point where many of them would, rather than designing objects, they were designing tools so that people could make the stuff if they wanted to and things like that. The notion of, you know, you don't see that many designers coming out of college uh, or particularly the Royal College, you know, talking, talking about, want to design mass manufacturing in the way that maybe they used to, or even that kind of high-end Italian furniture manufacturer. I mean, there's not that much furniture, for instance, coming out of the Royal College nowadays. When I started, it had an entire furniture department. Yeah. So, yeah, there has been quite a profound uh, change in the way that designers think about their profession, which, you know, has, has made it really interesting. And, you know, I'll, I'll pick up on something you, that I think you've I either read that you've said or I heard you say mm -hmm. is that you're interested in in materials and the way they change people's lives. Yeah, well, like, you know, I would argue that, that you know, the stuff we're surrounded by is, is hugely important to the way that we live. And I mean, the most obvious example of that, and I have mentioned it before, uh, was the Grenfell Tower disaster, where, you know, this, uh, aluminium and composite material was allowed to clad this this tower block because you know because of the way that we're governed and because of some big mistakes and some smaller mistakes um and i mean really down to a, a lack of care and putting profit before people uh seemed to be the reason why this stuff was allowed to cover a building and turn it into an inferno so yeah i mean these these things materials and the materials that we specify and the things that are around us and what it says about us um they are incredibly important they're things to take really seriously so i think everybody should listen to my podcast Sean. that's what i'm saying <laughs> okay we'll send everybody your way thank you <laughs> yeah um but there's an interesting point there because you know within you know, there's a political argument, isn't there, around the use of materials, the provision for use, and the laws that um, govern use. You know, in China, for example, you know, where they dyeing leathers or skins or something. Mm. You know, you know, the 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 dyers will be their hands in mixing the solvents, which are hugely problematic in terms of what it does to the skin. Um, but then the skins will go to France. Um, and the luxury brand will be using the skins without any kind of, you know, without any um, yeah. 
conscious about the impact of their manufacturing process on on the product they produce and then sell it for huge amounts of money the person in the in the tannery is in effect you know living on the bread line or poverty line um and then the bag's been sold for ten thousand pounds yeah (laughs) (laughs) there are issues with our systems Uh, i think there's there's no question uh and i think lots of people know that and we probably need to do well we need to do something about it I mean, I think as as you were talking, it was quite interesting because I was thinking about one or two other things that are vital and, and maybe that this can start or should start, will start from the luxury industry. It's this notion of perfection. Uh, and I think we have to get away from everything looking perfect um, because I think in our new material age, that's not going to happen. Um, and, you know, to, I mean, I, I was in a conversation the other day and with, with um, leather experts and they were saying that, you know what happens nowadays is is to try and keep leather perfect we encase it in plastic which means it won't biodegrade and i think the notions of of imperfection and the importance of repair are going to come become more and more important to the way that we live uh, incidentally i mean this is going off on a slight tangent but it's it's kind of it's occupying some of my time it seems to me that ai potentially in the not too distant future is set to take it'd be the first revolution that takes white collar jobs potentially um, and it's already happening in journalism, where where algorithms are writing pieces, and you know they can, they can write a, they can sub a press release down better than a you know a, a young journalist. So they're going to take white collar jobs, which means that what are white collar workers going to do? And it, it seems to me that we need to get back into a repair economy, and and actually more likely than not, people using their hands in a different way again. And you know up to a point, even potentially, you know going back to the land to. To, to work so there's a revolution that's kind of round you know admittedly quite a long corner but a corner nevertheless uh and we have to think these things through quite carefully it's interesting you say that so i had a conversation and i re- i mean i refer to this all the time with um, um a lady called olga Belluti. so there's a, a french leather company called Belluti that was started right. i think it was by her uncle it's been bought over by the lvmh group but the right. story, she, you know, at, when I when I spoke to her, she said to me, you know, the best pair of shoes is not a new pair of shoes. It's a pair of shoes, you know, that you've had for years and you take to be um, yeah. repaired. But this idea of perfection, I mean, I often um, wonder to myself, you know, when I look at these um, specifically, you know, luxury brands and I look at the product that's not beautifully made, and it slightly bothers me, but it doesn't bother me because it's not beautifully made. It bothers me because of the price of the artifact. Right. Um, and in fact, I'm I'm also doing a project with a leather maker, and we went to to the um, to the leather supplier, and he was picking all the perfect skins. And I said, but it's not about the perfect skin. It's about what you're doing with the skin. That's much more important. So there's this, I suppose, this push and pull, isn't there, of of luxury being the product being perfect, but also what you're saying, the touch of the hand, which is probably more important than the product being, the, you know. Yeah, but also materially, you know, if you're, I, you know, I've done things with Smart Plastics, the recycled plastic mm. company, for instance. And, you know, it's very hard to get batch after batch of what they do when they're recycling plastic exactly the same. Mm. Um, so, you know, for, if they're going to get bigger and bigger, it's one. It's one thing. I don't know. Doing doing one kitchen unit because you got a batch. But if you're going to do, you know, you're going to do these kitchen units across a block of flats or whatever, they're not going to be exactly exactly the same. I don't suppose. And I think people have to get used to that notion of of 
um, imperfection and 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 celebrate it, frankly. Yeah, and but the imperfection is the perfection. Could be, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that kind of to me makes you know why have everything the same? No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think this is you know eclecticism. There's nothing wrong with this, Sean. It's a good thing. No. Um, yeah. but we just have to persuade more people. I know we um, we're coming um, to the end of our of our chat, but I just wanted to ask you what you because I know you are you've asked some of your guests this question, so I'm going to ask you the same thing. Okay. How this is why I hate being on the other end of this. You right. know, it's a lack of control, Sean. I can't <laughs> deal with it. I'm not good with it. But anyway, let's see let's see what happens. It's not a difficult question. It's just how you okay. think the world of design has changed over the past, you know, five years or so. Well. I mean, you know, as I say, I think the designers are having to think in a very different way than they were when I first started, where it was just, I mean, nobody really, I mean, the whole Earth catalogue was, what, 1968. But when I came into the industry in the mid-90s, nobody was really talking about sustainability at that point. Um, Everybody was just producing stuff. And it seemed like good stuff. And um, people were buying it and the economy was doing well and it was all great. Uh, nowadays, designers have to think about why they're producing stuff, who they're producing it for, how it will be used, how it will be thrown away, whether they should be doing it in the first instance, obviously what materials they should be working in. And it's been a profound change up to a point for at least a, a strata of designers. There are still lots of companies pumping out crap products. They get thrown away. I mean, I'm not pretending that doesn't happen. But there's a much richer debate in the design and architecture world, I would argue, nowadays. And there has been, you know, for, for years before that, where, I mean, what, you know, fairly early when, in my career, Frank Geary did the Guggenheim in Bilbao. And, you know, architecture, lots, lots, not all, but lots of the debate about architecture was about, you know, form and it was about brands' relationship with architecture and, and now architecture is having to have a really deep think about how it behaves and operates and whether it should be knocking buildings down that have this embodied carbon and embodied energy and, and the waste of, of doing that and and you know how you build and the materials you build with and where you I mean it's 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 a fascinating it's a fascinating moment, I think. But not as easy possibly as it used to be. Yeah. Um so yeah, there's been a profound shift in design i would argue in in during my career and you know it's made it a more interesting place yeah and i I suppose as you've referred to throughout our conversation you know this idea of of innovation in materials and the different types of materials you know i don't know whether they you you mentioned uh, mycelium or you know Mm. biomaterials and things like that that are um, becoming much more prominent in, you know, in hemp. The use of hemp certainly in in Europe is much more prolific than it is here, and much more readily available. All those uh, materials that are coming, you know, different kinds of wood, sustainable wood. I mm. mean, is there such a thing as sustainable wood? Actually, well, people would argue that there is. Again, it, with all these things, it depends how you use them. Mm. So, you know, it's quite. I, I was at a um, conference about wood a couple of weeks ago at the V&A or a month or two ago at the V&A. And it was quite interesting because you saw different generations of architects presenting. Uh, you know, one architect uh, who was an early pioneer of CLT, so cross-laminated timber, and the projects he was shown, it was it was just using cross-laminated timber like you'd use concrete, you know, which is better, absolutely no question, um, in many regards, better than, than using concrete for those projects. However, the architect who came later 
and used timber in a different way with other materials, you know, she's pointed out in the past that we can't use CLT like we use concrete because, frankly, there aren't enough trees. Certainly, for unless until unless we plant acre after acre almost immediately, there aren't going to be enough trees for CLT, for instance, to just simply replace concrete. So we need to build in a different way. I mean, you know, I, I think the American Hardwood Export Council, who've done a lot of marketing and campaigning around their forests um, over on the east coast of America, would argue that what they do is sustainable. You know, if forests are managed properly, the timber's used properly, then it is sustainable because you do need to manage forests. There's no question. However, you know, if you overforest and you use too much wood, then it becomes un unsustainable. Yeah. So it's, it's about how you use these things as much mm. as anything. What do you think? I mean, I, every time you say something, I think of something else to ask you. What do you think about 3D printing buildings? You know, because that's concrete that they're using, isn't it? Or mostly concrete. Yeah, I, I, I don't have any... I mean, you know, I think, I think, um, I, you know, um, yeah, it's a technology, it's a tool like any other. We'll see. I mean, it's still okay. very experimental, isn't it? We'll see. But, I mean, generally, I, I think it's probably if we can stop using as much concrete as we do and steel, that's got to be a good thing is, is really where I, I stand on that because the construction industry has to bring its carbon emissions down. Reuse, yeah. reuse and repair. Is, right. a, is a huge element. So it's not one thing. This is the key. It's not one thing. It's a whole smorgasbord, if you must, of different things we need to do to bring our carbon emissions and other elements that are you know, affecting climate change to, to bring them down. Okay. There's not one single magic bullet. No. No, there, and there never is. <laughs> there never is. That's, this is, it. Right. Never is. So on that note, I'm going to finish as I finish all my conversations and ask you, what is your luxury? Well, I mean, as I say, I mean, it's it right now. It's it's time. It's um, having an opportunity not to look at my email. Um, sleep would be good because um, I haven't had much recently. Um, if I'm honest, I mean, I say, I mean, my favourite. My favourite time is is going to Lords to watch cricket with my son, really. Right. So um, that would be, you know, that's a huge luxury for me, and just a great day out. So does that is that suitable? Yeah, it's not a I pair mean, of shoes. You know. No, I'm I'm <laughs> pleased it's not a pair of shoes. Actually, oh, good. <laughs> Brilliant, Grant Gibson. Thank you so much for joining me on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Uh, it was my complete pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you to our sponsors, Intellect Books. And thank you, of course, for listening. And don't forget, you can catch up on all previous episodes of the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favourite listening channel. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast. Hold up. 